Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton, and I'm your host. Most of the time, at least. During this episode, however, my daughter Ashley interviews her grandfather, the Yankee Air Pirate, as part of her senior project at St. John's University. The purpose of the project was to learn about American society and culture from the period they've been studying in class from someone that lived through and experienced those events firsthand. I'm really proud of Ashley for researching the period, writing the interview questions, and conducting an awesome interview with the Yankee Air Pirate. Personally, I think she deserves an A+, but clearly I'm a little biased. If you're someone that's easily offended by listening to opinions that don't align with your own, don't listen to this podcast episode, because Ashley will ask questions about American society and culture, and her grandfather responds candidly with his opinions. Everyone has their own opinions, and the Yankee Air Pirate is certainly not afraid to share his. After all, what are they going to do? Throw him in a prison cell in Vietnam and beat the hell out of him for six years? Been there, done that. So let's get right to it. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. Go Johnnies! Yours is a unique story in that you were completely removed from American society with little contact and information about what was happening in the United States for more than six years. Can you briefly describe where you were from January 1967 until March 1973? That's very easy to describe that period of time because I was pretty much, as the Navy said, on shore duty. I was a prisoner of war in North Vietnam, and I was in Hanoi. Most of the time was spent in the Wallow Prison, which was the max security prison of Hanoi, in downtown Hanoi. And that's it. All right, thank you. So those years were extremely turbulent for the United States, both politically and socially, particularly in California, where you and your family were living when you left for Vietnam. Can you touch on some of the obvious changes that you saw when you returned, like miniskirts, long hair, music? The first thing that amazed us when we came in sight of San Francisco, flying in from Hawaii on a C-141, was the Transamerica building in downtown uh, San Francisco, which had been noted for its unique architecture. And uh, basically for a hundred years, it had an image. And here in the middle of it was a elongated pyramid sticking up into the air as if San Francisco were giving a hand signal to the world. And uh, we were so surprised at it, we asked the guy, now this is after being away for home for seven years, we asked him to circle one more time so we could see it. We could not believe that anyone would pay for that kind of architecture. 
and let alone display it. So that, that was an eye-opener, literally. And then arrival and finding your father and your two uncles with hair down to their shoulders was a shock. I did quite well in keeping my mouth shut. I'm sure they will uh, take exception to that. However, at one time, I think it was your father, said to me, you were always saying, you know, if you don't like it, why don't you try it before you knock it? So I actually let my hair grow out. There's a picture of me with hair, not down to my shoulders, but down over my ears and sideburns, you know, like general burns, down to my jawbone. And what a mess. I look like a sheep that had been lost for two years, let alone six years. So the styles uh, had gone, come and gone from a, a male point of view. I uh, sort of missed the fact that I missed the period of time when the miniskirts, when the skirts went from the ankles up to the buttocks and then back down. I think they were down around the knees by the time I came home. And I couldn't imagine or picture how any woman could possibly survive walking around in public in a miniskirt. So th those fashion things were sort of beyond me. The, the long hair probably was more, as it was intended to be, significant of a revolt against certain values that I held. Um, I was disgusted by the reports of the citizens of Oakland and San Francisco spitting and throwing things and excrement and stuff at returning Vietnam veterans as they came through Oakland and uh, San Francisco airports. Uh, we felt guilty that we were received so well when the guys that really fought the war and actually won it a couple of times, the government was too stupid to figure it out, and to come home and be treated like that, to me, was uh, really astounding. And that was a key factor in, say, something fundamentally had changed because we did not treat people returning from World War II like that. And so these changes you saw, did, how do they concern you for the future of the country? The things that bothered me most was the the obvious misdirection of the media and of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, who had teamed up to destroy the presidency, President Nixon, who had bought us home. The, the Watergate incident was a manufactured incident. It was a third-rate burglary, not even authorized by the White House itself. And it precipitated, let's get rid of, this is a way to get rid of President Nixon. And I have to realize I'm prejudiced because President Johnson sent me to war and deserted me and my family. Richard Nixon restored dignity to my family and brought me home. So obviously I am somewhat in favor of Mr. Nixon. But the idea that Deep Throat, who turned out to be the deputy director civilian of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, 
was the guy squealing and passing information. Woodward, supposedly the famous Washington Post uh, reporter who was digging out and investigating, was doing no more than going into a basement garage, taking notes from this high-level GS-18 squealer who was jealous because he did not get to be appointed as the director of the FBI. L. Patrick Gray got appointed. And that just sucked the, good, the life out of him, and he decided to destroy the president. And if you take a look at history, I was right to be concerned about that because that's exactly how they got rid of President Trump. So did you see any positive changes um, between 1967 and 1973 politically? I think there, it, it sounds strange to say this, but I think that the positive change I saw was that the country had survived in spite of all of these attacks on it. The, the basically free speech movement out of Berkeley in the in the 1960s, the university-led uh, revolts in the late 60s, um, the overthrow, basically, of the presidency, and the country, the republic endured. And the working man, the people that actually produced something, the people that actually, like I say, the enlisted men fought the war, the working men built this country. Maybe all the smart guys had the ideas, and you can't do without that, I realize it. But who actually does the pick and shovel work? Who builds the railroads? It was the Irish that built the railroads. It, it wasn't some well-to-do New Yorker who came up with the idea and bankrolled it. It never would have happened without him, I understand that. But the people who really count, the people who did the work, Somehow they kept the faith, faith, and to me, that was a sign of resiliency and that the Republic would endure. So, see, so today we see a pretty great divide among Americans like in terms of social, cultural, economic, and political beliefs. Do you think the country was more or less united prior to 1967? And when you returned home in 1973, did you see the divide getting more or less pronounced? Well, the short answer, I think, was very well united prior to my departure, and it was stumbling into disarray about the time that, uh, that I returned home, when you had sort of a floating presidency. You never really knew until President Reagan showed up and people were just sort of keeping the seat warm, and no one seemed to be in charge. And that, uh, that to me, was a, a, a great difference in, in terms of politically. Uh, socially, I, I saw so many of the things that had contributed to my uh, growth in the 1930s and 1940s things that supported my parents and my parents' values and stuff like that. I couldn't, I couldn't see them as visible anymore. They had to have been there because the country survived. But they were, patriotism was not popular. Um, 
Law and order was not popular. Uh, things that we respected as kids, uh, our, even teachers uh, were not popular. The last thing in the world you wanted when I was a kid was you report to come home from your teacher, you were going to suffer worse from your parents than you ever were from the teacher. The teacher was always supported. The, the cop on the beat was always supported. And they supported the family values. And that kind of that kind of glue that held my childhood together, I couldn't see it any longer. Everybody appeared to be in revolt. Everybody is entitled to their own opinion, but at some point in time in a democracy, they shut up and find a way to get along together. And things that people called uh, legitimate protest and expression of, of the First Amendment rights, to me, were nothing uh, uh, more than a soccer riot. I didn't see them as in a, any... I didn't see any socially redeeming value in riots. And yet that became the coin of the realm apparently while I was gone and it continues to this day. If something's wrong, you don't go out and fix it. You go out and yell, scream, burn down things and destroy things. And somehow that is gonna make things better. I have yet to figure out the logic in that. Maybe in the next 90 years I will. So as a practicing Catholic, I know you were really astounded at the changes in the church when you first attended Mass. When you returned home, what were your impressions of these changes and how did they affect your own ideas about Catholicism and the church that you had grown up in? Well, when I returned, I, I learned to respect uh, the church that had produced my family my parents, my grandparents, and that had that I had been raised in. I respected the the men and women, the, the nuns and the priests, uh, for the sacrifices they had made to help all our immigrant families w well together into a, a political whole uh, that helped us glorify and revel in our differences, our nationalities. Uh, we were proud of being Italian and Irish and Jewish. Um, we felt confident enough that we could make jokes about ourselves and each other without being threatened to be thrown in jail as you are today. So um, the church supported that and I found out when I came home that the last Catholic Mass that I recognized as a Catholic Mass, I had attended in Hanoi at gunpoint on Christmas of 1969. Now granted, the, the sermon was a communist sermon. The, the commun political commissar got up and gave the sermon that, uh, that Christ was a a working man and a rebel, and Jesus and Mary hopped in their Jeep and drove down to uh, Egypt, fleeing the aggressive uh, Roman American invaders and all that kind of stuff, and, which gave you a good laugh in the middle of Mass. I mean, it was all right. But when I came home, I did not recognize what was going on. I, I had a welcome home Mass in our local parish, and it was hard to find the priest on the altar. 
I mean, we, we had bands and bongo drums and assistants and this, this and that's and the other. And uh, to conclude it all, half of the CCD class got up in the front with pom-poms like cheerleaders and sang a song welcoming me home. This is in mass. And it, to me, it was just absolutely astounding. And uh, I just didn't recognize it. And it came Easter time, and we're all sitting down uh, Palm Sunday, and we're waiting to go in. And the pastor comes in, and start, uh, the assistant pastor comes in and yells for all of us to get out in the parking lot. And of course, still being somewhat obedient, we did it. We all marched out in the parking lot. And they stuffed palms in our hands so we could progress into church, leading him into church, singing some rap song that I hadn't the faintest idea what the devil it was. And uh, that to me was just totally foreign. And uh, today I go to what is called Mass in the post-Vatican II uh, as penance. That's my penance. I don't have to worry about fasting and abstinence and on you know Fridays and stuff like that or wearing a hair shirt anymore. My hair shirt is on Sunday going and attending because there, there's a kernel in the center of the Mass at the consecration that makes it the Mass. But any, everything surrounding it is uh, more Calvinist and Lutheran than it is Catholic. So as you can see, I have rather strong feelings about it. Yeah. Um, the latest uh, thing out of Rome, where the so-called Pope, he actually prescribed the Latin Mass. The conditions are such that you can't say the Latin Mass legal any, legally anymore, anywhere. Now that to me is uh, just, I don't understand it. So I haven't left the church, the church left me. It's like we grew up Democrats. My dad, any any working man in the in, in the um, in the Depression era, was a Democrat. The FDR, in effect, saved them in their mind, gave them a retirement with Social Security, and did all kinds of uh, things like that. They, they they had that sort of a sort of a respect. Anyway, that's. I digress, I'm sorry. No, the, so the movement while you were away was meant to like, and the protests were meant to promote diversity and inclusiveness and less violence. So do you think it was a bit ironic when you returned home and you say the church was less diverse and less welcoming? Well, it's, I don't see that the church gained anything. The, the church was losing people from going to Mass. And they decided apparently that somehow if they opened up the windows and opened up their arms and bought in more people, and uh, they have even less going to Mass now. When I came home, I think that the, the practicing Catholic probably maybe 60% went to Sunday Mass. We're, we're less than 25% now of practicing Catholics. And some 60% of uh, Catholics, when surveyed by Lord knows who surveys them, they n I never touch base with me, but they don't believe that uh, the, the Mass is the uh, reenactment of uh, Calvary and that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. Now, how you can be a Catholic and not believe that, I don't know. 
and, uh, and how you can claim to be a Catholic and support abortion. I don't understand that at all. So I guess the best thing I can say is I don't understand what's going on. Okay. So you left Vietnam with three young sons, age one, three, and five. When you came home, they were seven, nine, and 11. Did you have more concerns about the world that your boys were growing up in when you came home compared to the world you knew when you left? And if so, what kind of things were you worried about um, when they had to face the world as adults compared to when you had left? I was fortunate in that your grandmother and I had talked out and prepared for any possible separation. One new lieutenant commander in every squadron was either going to be dead or in prison that went to Vietnam in the years that I was there. So the odds were not good. There were only two lieutenant, new lieutenant commanders in my squadron. So one of us was not going to come back. And unfortunately, the choice was mine. You know, I was chosen. <laughs> but we had discussed the, uh, where we would, uh, where uh, your grandmother would go, um, what we were expected would, basically up through grammar school, uh, of what was going to happen. And Grandma followed the flight plan and fortunately moved to Palo Alto, California. At that time, Palo Alto was sane, not insane. It, in other words, it wasn't in a, a set of revolt. The school system was good, it was sound. And we had a good family there, good family friends by the name of Foy, Pat and Tom Foy. And they became surrogate parents to your father and uh, your two uncles. So they were basically bought up in the Foy family and with Tom Foy's values and stuff like that. So I inherited when I came home, your grandmother had done a super job in raising these kids. And, and in the formative years, there isn't much you can do with a youngster after puberty. Their basic values are set. And theirs were set and they were set well. So I was, I was confident there. Now, granted, I had a problem with haircuts. Yeah. That, that, that was a real problem. But, but other than that, uh, I, I was pretty confident. The thing that worried me is, we touched on it a little bit earlier, when I grew up, the neighborhood, the church, the school, uh, the extended family all supported each other. They supported the family. And they supported the family values. They may go off and do screwy things. They may be in jail. Lord knows what may happen to them, but they know they did wrong. They didn't pretend it was right. You know, we used to kid about one of the, one of the Boston mayors and said, he's a crook, but he's our crook type of thing. They, they never claimed that what was wrong was right. There was such a thing as truth, and they admitted when they were on, off base and were prepared to pay the circumstances. But they uh, subscribed to and worked towards keeping the Ten Commandments, you know, being good, honest people. And I didn't, I, that was, seemed to have been gone. We, we appeared to be an endangered species. By we, I mean a family. Divorce had gone over the roof. Cohabitation, rather than getting married, it was easier to shack up and try it out or whatever. Um, it was just the norm. That just blew my mind. And my three boys 
were going out into this world. The ones who led the revolt of the, the students were the faculty. The faculty were the dummies. They were having a ball. They were all socialists and off experimenting with our kids. They're the ones that turned these kids into idiots. They forgot to teach them and started indoctrinating them. And now I hear, you take your kid and you send them to school, what are they gonna be teaching them? What values, are, is, the neighborhood doesn't share my values, so that you let them go out and play, they're not gonna run into people like the Foys that are reinforcing values. Even you take them to church, the new church, I have not heard one sermon on the seven last things. I've never heard anything about hell and damnation and confession, about the obligation to attend mass. I have heard none of the obligations that you have as a human being, but I've heard all about all the rights we have. Now, if you've got rights, you have, they come with obligations. I mean, there's no free lunch. And somehow these idiots who are trying to lead the thought of kids in school and in government and stuff, uh, indicating that you have free lunch. Oh, you're hungry, we'll give you food stamps. Oh, uh, you don't have a job, we'll give you money. Can you imagine, uh, you're, you know, you're busy with school and stuff like that. The government actually sent us money to help us, your mother and I, get through COVID. I think the total must have been around four, three different increments, about four, four or five thousand dollars. For nothing. Now, if that isn't sheer stupidity, nobody even asked the question. All my income right now is from the government already, my VA pension and my military pension, and now they're handing me money. We gave it to Quincy's Relief Fund, the city of Quincy. That's dirty money. That, that, that's just dirty money. And uh, th that kind of a sense of values how do you bring up a kid to go out and work for a living? If you can make more money in the last two years, as anyone can, if you can make more money being unemployed than being employed, you are an idiot if you go out and get a job. To me, it, it, it's an insane, topsy-turvy world. And that's the concern, you know, the real concern I have with it. The kids will do it. They were bought up right. They had good values. Uh, you know, your, your grandmother and the Foys did a good job. They, 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 they know it. If they don't, if they want to screw it up, that's their choice, because they, they have free will, and and I, you know, I respect that. I don't like it, but I respect it. But it isn't because they didn't get a foundation. Now, how do they go from here, from the time they leave my house, and continue to survive? Do they keep the faith? Does somebody steal the Catholic faith from them in the process? I mean, even when Notre Dame leads the retreat of all Catholic colleges from Vatican endorsement as Catholic schools, and that's supposedly Notre Dame, if that's the heading of, of the college level, what, what are they teaching the students? So it's, uh, it's it, that insanity, that Obviously, that's what bothered me. It still bothers me. Well, it keeps me awake at night. You'll find out when you get kids. You know, you always listen to the phone.
So you've lived for nine decades so far. Happy belated birthday, by the way. Thank you. First hand, more changes than most Americans. Your perspective is far different than most in that you know the value of freedom from a deep and personal level most Americans take for granted. Taking into account all of the changes you've seen in, your, in our nation in 90 years, especially those since your return from Vietnam, are, are your opinions optimistic for the future of the United States? I am absolutely and totally optimistic for the future of the United States. You cannot keep a free... Once a man has been free, you cannot keep him down. I found that out in prison. They can imprison your body, but they can't take your mind. They can affect your mind. They can't touch your soul unless you permit it. So actually, we built a quality life in jail in downtown Hanoi in a max security prison with what we had. We kept the faith. We kept our oath. We earned our pay. We got in the knickers of the enemy every day in every way we could. We made his life as miserable for them as we could. And in our mind, we came home with honor. And that's from having been a free man, a free woman, a free person. And this country has known freedom. And you see vestiges of it showing up now. And the, uh, the fuzzy heads don't understand it. Why would first responders in New York City, who were heroes back in 9-11 and now bums, because they refused to get a foreign substance inoculated into them that is claimed to be a vaccine, but in fact is not vaccine. Truth, that's all there is. And by edict, they changed the rules of employment, conditions of employment. These guys, if it was a condition of employment, it'd be okay. But these guys are employed. Now they're told they have to suck this stuff up or they're out of a job without a retirement. And there'll be no retirement, no uh, unemployment insurance for them. The government will pursue them like the hound of hell. These are the former heroes, and they're treating them this way. Yet they still stand up, and they're standing up for principle. It's not, not even medicine. It's not even politics. It's a fundamental thing of you cannot dictate to me what I put into my body. That's my choice, and it's a decision made with my physician not with anyone in the White House or anyone in any place else. It's none of their damn business. And I, and I think that that's the spirit that you see, and you're going to see more of it. The more they try to dictate to us on wearing masks, not wearing masks, vaccinate. Oh, by the way, I am vaccinated. I mean, it's everybody has a right because I'm a free man. I can do what I want to do. And But that's what you see. That spirit of freedom is still here. And people will take an awful lot because we are a generous people. Americans are generous to a fault. The president's over giving away half our treasury right now at so-called climate conference. Promising them everything, riding around in a motorcade, 85 cars in his motorcade. I mean, he's doing all of this grand stuff in our name. I mean, 
Our country will put up with all kinds of foolishness, but there's a certain point, and you're seeing it in Virginia when you turn around and you have some idiot say, a parent has no right to dictate what a child is taught in a school. That's pure unadulterated socialism, communism. That, the communists tried that. They used to take babies away as soon as the, they were weaned and put them in state nurseries. There was no such thing as a family. So they had control of them. That's what they're leading to now. How dare you, who pay my salary and elected me to my office, tell me what I can do with your children? Think of the insanity. And people, got even, even people who despise the Republican Party are putting up with and probably will vote for the Republican candidate over that very issue. And, and it isn't just that county and those people. The idea that I, as a parent, do not have a voice in what is taught to my children is abhorrent because I am a free person. I'm an American. And that thread is right there. Free people. You never are going to be able to subject free people. All right. Other than that, I have no opinion. All right. Thank you so much for doing this with me, Grandpa. I really appreciate it. And thank you for showing me what it means to be a proud American. I'm really grateful to be your granddaughter. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to share with you. Love you. Love you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. George Santiana once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Ashley, BZ to you for taking the time to remember. You did a terrific job with your oral history project, and we're all so proud of you. Go Johnnies. Visit and like our Facebook page, The Yankee Air Pirate, to see pictures and video of the people, places, and things we discuss in our podcast series. You can contact us with questions or feedback by emailing us at theyankeeairpirate at gmail.com. That's theyankeeairpirate, all one word, at gmail.com. We appreciate all our listeners. Semper Fi.